Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My new novel, Limelight, is out now. Huge thanks to everyone who has read it, shared it and reviewed it. I'm absolutely buzzing from your lovely feedback. Over on Instagram, at the Daisy B, I'm auctioning special signed copies to raise money for Ty the Beach Hut Guy and his amazing respite care project, as seen on Britain's Best Beach Huts. Bid for a personalised copy of Limelight and a shout out on Your Booked. The auction closes on Friday the 7th of July. I'm also hosting a one-day summer school course on Sunday the 23rd of July for the Creative Confidence Clinic. It's designed to give you a creative mojo boost in the next few months and reignite your passion for any creative project that you might be working on. Email creativeconfidenceclinic at gmail.com for more information and use the code BOOKED to get a special listener discount rate. And the Limelight Tour continues. Come and hang out with me at Also Festival and Prima Donna Festival, and I'll be announcing some autumn dates soon. Now on to today's guest. We're back at Suneva Fushi's Barefoot Bookshop with a special speaker from the Jaipur Literary Festival. It's GBC Pierre. Should you be wondering, it stands for Dirty But Clean. Pierre won the booker for his debut, Learning God Little. His latest book, Big Snake, Little Snake, is a meditation on fortune, risk and fate. It's a provocative and healing exploration of figurative and literal gambling and our relationship with luck. From our paradise island, surrounded by resort rabbits, we talked about hopeful books, Evelyn Waugh and getting sexy books off your barber. Hello, so I'm with DBC Pierre at the Sneva Fushi bookshop with the barefoot bookseller and it's all quite surreal isn't it spectacular but it's um... certainly barefoot if only you could be here with us you kind of are let me just describe very briefly through the window there's a towering triple canopy i have to say jungle with mangroves uh endless kind of wild birds it would be full of snakes and lizards and god knows what but the birds we should have almost done it in the middle of the the forest there to have these birds coming in and rabbits maybe you can add some in yeah the rabbits were a mistake i think uh, uh, historically but hey they do have a brand of rabbit on the island oh do you know what kind of rabbits they are they look like a californian rabbit i don't know there are differing stories i've heard because the first thing you go is a nice little black and white rabbit according to namita kokole who's uh, here with jaipur literature festival Either a pair arrived 20 or 30 years ago or a pregnant mother arrived and was set loose. Uh, and they've since... That's not to say it's crawling with them like Australia at its worst, but you do see that you'll see at least one or two a day of bunnies. You should put some, put some wild bird noises in there. Wow, wow, wow. Just to give it atmosphere. <laughs> I do worry that I'm just really, really jet-lagged and this is a dream and I'm actually, you know, sort of on a cramped BA flight with my knees in my ears. <laughs> and, this, and I'm watching an episode of The White Lotus and this has all got scrambled in my brain. Yeah, it's, I tell you, it is a very, very fine line. Interestingly, tomorrow night we're going to speak about fiction. And it's a perfect setting for that because uh, we really are pushed to the dividing line between reality and fiction. And this is such a trope, the private tropical island you know, far away somewhere. And to actually be, as you say, to be lofted there from Heathrow is, is uh, a hell of a shock to the system, which is great. It's just what we need. 
I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you about any books you've read, um, novels or otherwise, that has a group of people in an isolated setting like this. And then follow Gosh, them. there's a few. I particularly like them. This, I grew up travelling a lot between um, the South Pacific and the Americas. So I spent a lot of time on tropical islands. They're my favourite place, my favourite geography. Um, a lot of time in Tahiti and the Fiji Islands. And so I'm particularly attracted to also to works that put people there. Kicking off, of course, with Lord of the Flies, which we had to do at school, but it's one of those few school books that, that uh, I actually really loved, as set against, for instance, Chaucer, which was a bit too tricky when I was 12. There was one missioner wrote a book early on called The Drifters. It wasn't an island. It was um, a group of, I'll say, layabouts in uh, what became the Costa del Sol. I think they were in they were around Torremolinos back in the 60s before it had become a thing and before tourism was a big deal. And he had them down there smoking hash and sitting around and, and uh, changing their worldview. And it, in a certain sense, I think the book was almost responsible for the Costa del Sol growing up because everyone suddenly wanted to do that and go and sit there and it's beautiful. There's another one, I'm not going to remember the name right now, um, but another beautiful, similarly decadent story on the Nile uh, with a bunch of intellects who just meet and gather every afternoon. It's, uh, again, a bit of jet lag that I can't bring that to mind, but if I remember, it's well worth a look. It's actually uh, a translation from Arabic, but a very famous and, uh, and good book. That sounds fascinating, because we were both at the same talk today, and... I do sometimes drift off a little bit as the um, intricacies and complexities of these things go over my head, but I suppose thinking about civilization and, you know, novels and, um, you know, the books we were speaking, or that were being uh, spoken about um, and the Silk Road story, it is about, you know, what happens when you bring a group of people together to try and make their own world and what goes wrong and what goes right. Mm. That was fascinating, actually, just to fill you in. We were hearing uh, from uh, Peter Frankopan and uh, William Dalrymple and other experts. And talks like that, it was about essentially about the, what we know of trading and how East and West came together originally. Uh, but it's an immense question. And of course, we don't get taught to this depth. It's beautiful to suddenly have your mind blown and have all your preconceptions of course we all know about the silk road and that's about all we thought about but the sea routes all the different ways in which uh, people gathered and as you say one eminent indian filmmaker stood up in the middle of the talk to say actually it's also a story about stories mm -hmm. so these people went to these places to trade because they heard about them because someone told them a story and it's you know, it, it's perfect to um, to be here and think that actually what came first, the story or the event. People went to China, people went to India because somebody came back with a story about it. And that's still happening now. We will go home with stories about here. and uh, So the world very much is made of stories. And this uh, festival like this is a perfect place to remember that. I wanted to ask you about Declining Fall by Evelyn Wall because I read an interview where you talked about that as being quite an important formative book uh -huh. for you. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts as to why, you know, young but smart, if I, you know, may say so about myself, why I was sort of latch onto it with such enthusiasm and alacrity. It started completely accidentally for me because I'm, a, I'm an ex-brochure thief as a child, I just love publications. I'm someone who'll buy a book just for the cover. I just like the objects of books. And I'm whether so, I eventually read them or not. That's so refreshing to hear because no one ever admits to it, but we all do it. Yeah, no, I literally will. If it has a good, uh, if there's something inspiring on the cover, I'll buy it. And I almost, for a long time, don't read it in case it spoils the cover of the thing. So I just love reproduction and... Uh, and that's how I came to Evelyn Wall. There was some bargain basement, I think here in, not here, in um, UK, 
When I was a kid, there was a bargain basement box of new books, and it was a massive volume, and it was twinned with one of his other novels. But it was a big a kind of lime green hardback, which was incredibly cheap. And I thought that it doesn't matter what it is or who it is, that is a very worthwhile object for that price. And so I carted around uh, for quite a while before I actually read it and then was immediately sucked in. And to answer your question, I wonder if we weren't inspired a little bit because there were teachers and there were kind of older people. You know, you get to that point of childhood where you start to realize Certainly in my day, when you're a kid, teachers are kind of unimpeachably senior and authoritative. And there comes a certain point in adolescence when you start reading that actually, you know, this one's a pisshead, this one's having an affair with that one, we caught this one in the bushes shagging this one, and, and you go, it's actually a zoo, that world. And then slowly you start going, actually, everywhere is a zoo. All your authorities start reading about these absolutely helpless um, escapades that adults got up to, which is incredibly liberating. And in a certain way, I wonder if Decline and Fall wasn't a guidebook to that, because nothing if not full of really hardcore escapades between people. And I loved the cycles. Particularly, I was, it's the first one that made me think it resembled life. Um, as opposed to some of the other things we had to read. And it's because it had cycles, there were recurrences in it. Is that certain characters in the beginning would be in one setting, they'd meet later in jail or in some other radical situation. And I found it inspiring for that. I don't thought of it that way, but I think that's a really interesting point. And I suppose as well learning, you know, that it is so funny. And I think I was reading someone in the first edition that Wall insisted that there was a um, an author's note. It's like, you know, this is funny. This is a joke. Do not come for me. Which is quite like, oh, that's, that's not new. We've always had to sort of make those disclaimers. But I guess people don't have consciences necessarily. They don't have to face consequences. They're inconvenienced by consequences. They don't have shame and guilt and regret. But also my memory is that Guy you know, things happen to him and he tries to be the architect of his own future to a point, but also he just sort of feels a bit exhausted by the events. And I think, you know, I would definitely, when I was a kid, I wasn't a bigger person for like stories of daring do and brave people. <laughs> and this idea of this guy being just a bit exhausted and a bit inconvenienced and kind of a touch of the Charlie Browns. I'm like, yeah, that's my guy. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. And it was just that first chink in the armour. I'm sure uh, in school now, yeah, things, according to the press anyway, are very, very different. And uh, I sympathise with uh, kids trying to grow up. You know, they're, they're probably learning more about anal sex than they are about the classics or any kind of geography or history. But at the time, we were particularly, we were kept innocent. It was part of childhood that your authorities, and this is in fact what thankfully is is um, being addressed at the moment is the amount of abuse and, and the amount of wrongdoing that passed under that mantle of innocence where your teachers were absolute authority. It used to be in the day that if a, if a teacher cuffed your ear hole in school, your parents would absolutely agree with that. They handed the authority to them and so there was this sealed box where adults were absolutely in control of you, regardless of what they were up to. And it was kind of pointless to, to argue with that. So to see the chinks, to see the adult, was a really, really uh, fresh and enlightening experience. And thank God we did, because you know, within six, seven, eight years, we were adults ourselves. And of course, adulthood is a complete zoo, and everything is possible. And uh, we try most of it and fail at most of it and all the other glorious things that, that bring us to this table. Uh, what I should ask you is a very sensitive and thoughtful question about the other books that explore moral ambiguity and empower children and are good for young minds and will help the revolution. What I really want to ask you is, um, have you read any great novels about anal sex? <laughs> <laughs> the only one I can think of is James Salter, off the top of my head. No, well, the only one you have to read about anal sex, and I'm not sure if it's if it's uh, even published, it's been banned forever, but it is 100 Days of Sodom, 
by the Marquis de Sade and the story of Juliet uh, and others. And I wouldn't have seen them. Of course, it's completely, it's obscene from the very first sentence to the last and is makes uh, such a casual statement of what is essentially uh, abuse um, that I can't recommend it in the modern day, but that is the benchmark. And it's kind of pointless to speak about anything <laughs> under that. I was given it, there's a fabulous bookshop in Paris, uh, Shakespeare and Co., the legendary bookshop, and uh, at a show there many years ago, uh, just as a gift for appearing, they have the extraordinary things in their back room, and they had these fabulous, I think 1952, 1953, Olympia Press editions, which is a little pocket book that was published, uh, I think, in Paris. Uh, what's the cover like? Does it give any hint as to the innards, no or is picture, it just a straight, no, plain? It's just a straight, it's almost like a little textbook um, in a, a straight. Uh, paperback mm. cardboard cover with simply the the title and the name and Olympia Press on there. And had you ever made any attempts to read it or get hold of it before no, that? Was it just a fabulous no. bonus? I grew up in Mexico and so um, the film Salo, uh, which is the, the cinematic equivalent, mm. appeared. Of course, we got access to many... Pasolini. Pasolini. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, we got access to many more art films than probably were shown in the UK and by dint of it being Mexico we could go into them when we were 11 and 12 years old and so actually a lot of our in terms of that you know, exposure to obscenity happened in the culture that and my barber I was the best groomed kid at school for a while because the local barber uh, as soon as your mum had dropped you off even when I'm nine years old as soon as your mum had left, um, he'd put the uh, put the smock on you, and open a drawer in the cabinet, and all the penthouses and playboys would come out, and you could sit and, and leaf through that while he cut your hair. So at nine, yeah, at any age, yeah, yeah. Wow. and of course it was great for a bit. Now at that time, that's scary stuff. We don't really want to know. No, um, you were reading it for the articles. Porn at the time. Well, they were good. Everyone used to write for it, you know. <laughs> Especially Playboy did that, but I wasn't reading the articles. But also, porn was, um, it wasn't hardcore. You know, it really was, mm. it had, it left enough to the imagination and, and was quite romantic. And so that was my first experience of, of obscenity kind of came from the culture. There's a great Simpsons episode that I love when Bart gets hold of Holmes' play dudes, but he does... It's the culture and the lifestyle, and it's not like naked ladies. He just he has the um, like the silk gown, and he's kind of made the treehouse into a grotto, and it's like serving the cocktails and gambling and entertaining. And did you get that kind of aspiration? You're like, it's not just about the nipples; it's this exotic world. Well, the seventies were steeped in that, and that was the decade of my childhood, and they were kind of steeped in. Very swishy music. Of course, I got much more access to American vibes than I did to, to British vibes there. But yeah, riding around in, in the right kind of car with all this swishy music and the, you know, the tropes of the day, which are, are now kind of famous and, and lurid in retrospect. What, what but do you it mean by swishy music? That. And I think, I'm thinking sort of Studio 54-ish, like disco? Or? Well, no, pre-disco even. Yeah, disco came along, but, you know, it was... Your TV shows had it all. Easy listening kind of thing. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd land over there and be in a limousine and, that you know, there would just be... Um, like pre-Yacht Rock. Exactly, Burt Bacharach ah, gotcha. type of numbers, which could be any artist. He's, he was so prolific, mm. but it was music to make you feel that everything was and was going to be fine. And you just couldn't imagine uh, a heart attack or an accident or anything happening in the vicinity of that music. It was just warm bath water and music of safety. And uh, as a kid, it was like the future looked bright and there was still, you know, the, the beats had turned into hippies and there was love and all of this going on. Of course, at the same time, 
you know, 1968, 1969, the Vietnam War, things were seriously happening. But just to be there in the culture, it was very much, we're going to be fine. But do you know why? Because we're not fascists like our parents. We actually, we're cool. Our haircut doesn't matter. Oh, no, it really does because the, the barber has Playboy and Penthouse. Oh, well, <laughs> okay, it matters for that. Exactly, yeah. My parents were paying. As soon as I had to pay, I didn't go there anymore. <laughs> I grew bored with it. I wonder and pray and actually suspect that the, the breakage of innocence, which I think does have to exist uh, for kids simply because there's so much to take on board. The brain is just expanding with the laws of physics and with social issues and I just think for, for it to break for us you know, later in adolescence mm. was a, a great thing and you have to pay for really good schools and probably even that wouldn't count anymore yeah. today just because it, it's ubiquitous but uh, it's a lot to take on board. I am, and it's the wrong thing to say in this time but I guess it's kind of, you know, in our environs maybe appropriate, I don't know but this, I can really feel this idea of listening to music and thinking everything's going to be just fine even though I'm sure lots of dreadful things did happen to a soundtrack of Burt Bacharach but um are there any books that have given you that but more broadly I suppose uh are there any books you've read that have made you feel hopeful or high Hope, hopeful do you know the one I kept going back to I had a really troubled uh, uh young adulthood uh, which is the time to do it. get it out of the way early I say and I kept going back to Papillon by Henri Charrière, which is a story of escape. It's an incredible adventure. It's non-fiction. It's more or less been attested to. You know, it might, it might be a little bit boastful, but it's an incredible story of this character's determination and resilience. And I found that a comforting thing, because... Pretty soon, I mean, things are always chaotic in the world, and pretty soon you realise that it's not always going to be plain sailing. And uh, when I was in deep trouble, I read it over and over again, simply because it made an incredible romance and a beautiful adventure out of life and death escapes. But the point is he kept escaping. He literally escaped from Devil's Island he would be captured, then he'd be put in solitary confinement for years with snakes and rats and cockroaches and no access to daylight and etc. He would still come up and escape again and he might be captured again and brought back and he would still try it again and eventually came out and in three weeks wrote this, wrote how it all happened in some notebooks and sent them to Paris and it became an immediate sensation around the world. That gave me hope. I mean, there are, uh, all books are kind of hopeful, I guess, in a sense. I mean, I think that the act of writing a novel and seeing that novel through to publication is so... It's such a lot that, you know, all authors, I think, it's got to be an act of hope over experience. It's nothing else. <laughs> delusion. It's the delusion drive. We don't do it because it's easy. We do it because we think it's going to be easy. And it's, if, if you knew what it took, or let me rephrase, if I knew what it took, I would not do it. Well, you said that brilliant thing after you won the booker, which I really had that sort of, I felt it like squeeze my gut, but in a great way. And I forgive me for paraphrasing, which I probably will, but I don't know how to write novels. I know how to write that novel. Yeah. So I thought, oh, thank God for that. No yeah. one knows. <laughs> I think it's, it's as it should be. Each book should, should make you a novice again, simply because, and this is where chat GPT does not enter the conversation of literature, for this simple reason, is that ultimately a novel, and especially a good or a great novel, as there have been many uh, across the last century, is not about the style and the language, uh, the theme, or anything else. It's a communication between humans in silence. And in a good novel will be an identification of things which only humans are able to share with each other. And a, a great novel will have things that we can't talk about on the street as well. 
but we feel in the company of someone very intimately who will be the character in the book or just the book itself where you go it, it doesn't have to be a book about your experience in life but that a work has been written which takes into account the feelings the ups and downs of humanity and and all the weird uh, kismet of it and expresses that to you that's a very private and, and intimate thing and so um, for that to happen of course it's best for an author to be naked and to be out swimming where nobody can help them that's too we can't just borrow tropes mm. and and do what we think people want you literally in a, in the best world and of course each of us tries to do it differently um, most often we will fail but the attempt is still valid to uh, to swim out beyond where anyone has gone and either drown or or survive and that is um, for me the essence of good works and so each one should should kind of be a its own nightmare in a way I know you've written a book about writing, but I don't know if you'd write another one. Drown or Survive is, I think that's your title. <laughs> Drown um. or Survive. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll be back with Pierre soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Grow the F Up by Sarah Knight. Sarah was one of the very first guests on this podcast and pretty much invented the genre of sweary self-help. This book is filled with tough, terrific love. It has some practical tips, but it's mostly about cultivating emotional resilience and achieving a seemingly impossible feat, standing your ground and building your boundaries while being a polite, pleasant, positive human. This is what Anne Patchett would call a nightstand book. I've got mine on my bedside table and I'm keeping it handy for whenever I need a boost. Grow the F Up by Sarah Knight is published by Quercus and out now. Now back to Pierre. I did want to ask you about that and about any books about writing that you have found especially helpful or compelling. Well, I wish I'd seen it. You know, when I was writing myself, I didn't know any. I was particularly naked. That's the only reason I, I, I have said this to you. Um, is that I didn't know, I'd never met a writer, uh, never met an editor or a publisher, so it was a completely, you know, it was Dracula's castle, and I'm at the bottom, bottom of the hill of it. Uh, and that was helpful for exactly that reason, is that I had to literally make the rules up as I went along. I wish there had been some books. There may have been, I didn't find them, and what I desperately needed was some, you know, a bit of Dutch courage and also some very practical pointers, which is why I wrote mine. It's just for people without an idea who are, who are floundering in the middle of the night. And the problem is there are plenty of works about the theory and the possibilities of literature, 
and the narrative arc and all these wonderful concepts. What does that mean on the page? Where do you put the words and why? That's what I needed at three o'clock in the morning. And so since then, uh, Stephen King on writing, mm. I wish I'd seen that, with, just because it's incredibly friendly and because he is the preeminent, no, no one may say this, but the preeminent American author and the ultimate American For author. For sure. And more literary than a great many literary prize winners. Mm. He's fallen by dint of uh, social psychology more than anything. Mm. In a certain way, I think his reputation has become about success and people have ignored the fact that this is actually the, you know, this is the Mark Twain of our day because all the Americana is written into his works and whether they're dark or the ways in which they're dark doesn't take away from that. So he wrote one and that was really mm. a comfort, but I read it too late. Now I can, now I can look at it when I start a new work, but uh, beyond that, I guess there'll be plenty, but it's too late now. Now I have but, to avoid them. I mean, I think you're so right that we don't say that about King, and we should, because you know, you can see, obviously, it's a singular voice, but you can feel the Hemingway. There's so many You Pulitzer's. can feel the Raymond Carver. It's yeah. got, and that, and the reason he is the, you know, he does the numbers, as the kids say. <laughs> he does, yeah. because it's that, you know, that's how horror works, because it's the unique and the universal. I don't think anything can be scary if you feel like, oh, millions of people are being scared with me, but yeah, yeah. millions but of people are. Modern horror is such an American thing. They're really uh, an art form and really elevated to a fine art form. Mm. There's so much of it. And King is such an absolute natural. But... It's not even about that. Dolores Claiborne, mm. which is a favorite of mine, the, the details, the texture of that from up around um, his home state of Maine, which has its own laws of physics and has its own way of thinking and everything that's so incredibly well expressed, as good as anything historical that you read about the South or any other yeah. part of the country. And it gets overlooked because it falls into genre, and I think it's... Uh, you know, it's a tragedy. He's, he should have a star on the on the literary walk of fame, and probably will. Yeah. You know, meantime, yeah. we, hope, we only we hope like to be nice about people when they die. That's the rule, isn't it? <laughs> it's a human thing, isn't it? It's you know, it's, it's a shame. Occasionally, you just go, well, "What's going on there?" And anyway, yeah, Stephen King. That was it. Was good to hear from him, and, and generous too, because obviously he doesn't have to say anything. Yeah. Um, that Hemingway's famous statement. It's nobody's business that you have to learn to write. Let them think you were born that way. And that's a mantra for many authors. It's like to make you feel that it flows from my fingers or that it happens all in, in, due to their genius. And, uh, of course, Stephen King does have that. But he's also happy to write about the grind of it and about the demons that he faces. And, you know, it's not a free ride for him either. Well, I mean, I am the least athletic person in the world. And the thing that enabled me to run was talking to people who run marathons, people who are very rangy, people who look like runners saying, really? sometimes I fucking hate running. Sometimes <laughs> it's the worst. I'm like, well, if you feel like that, that means that I'm not going to die after 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. Do you run? And Do you still run? I, uh, yeah. Not, not, it's, if you can call it a run, it's a very ploddy 5K around the park where I live. But, well, ploddy's um, best, apparently. That's healthy. I think that's it, because I think no one at school ever told me that you don't just peg it yeah. and that you have re periods of it being unendurable and then you can just about endure it again and then you feel quite good at the end. And yeah. that's, the, it, that's where I've learned the most about writing is, well, sometimes it feels horrible and you just have to keep going until that passes and it's okay again. That is... Very good point. I used to run, but you're true. See, at school, it's competitive. Mm. Yes, no one says. That's the problem. It's, it's better to kind fun. of see how far you can go, how you can go, and maybe yeah. that will get better. You're like, well, if you're not immediately fast. And I would think writing must be the same for so many it kids. It applies to life. You're absolutely right. There's a great quote, and I don't think it was meant as a great quote, but Sir Ronald Fiennes, after he had crossed Antarctica... Uh, at, at great personal cost. They asked him, you know, how do you do that? The obvious question. And he said, plod forever. 
don't think about the end, don't think about the future, the next step and the next step and the next step. And I thought plod forever is a good thing. <laughs> and eventually, you could, eventually you do get places that way, but like a novel, if you start That's thinking great. about, oh my God, I still mm. have 300 pages to go. Um, you're going to get up and leave the thing. But that thing that Anne Lamott says, and she's quoting someone else, and she always generously attributes it back to them, and I can never remember who it is, which is dreadful, but it's the driving through fog with headlamps on, and you can only see that little patch in front of you, but that's fine. Another beautiful one, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. It applies to all of... I love that everything applies to everything else. Yes. And I'm someone who desperately grasps for examples uh, from all over the place, but that one particularly about sticking with it mm. and that's the one consistent thing that you hear from anyone mm. talking about writing or anything stick with it anyone who's good at anything it's yes just... yeah stick with it yeah practicing a musical instrument or I anything else always i think it's in um i'm not going to get the title wrong is it music 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 clothes 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 boys 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 the viv, the, the viv albertine memoir uh, okay. The three, but that's, I think it's um, when she's in the slits. And I think, I don't know if it's a, a Sex Pistols girlfriend or she was living in this sort of like a squat and someone in the room upstairs, she's trying to learn the guitar and they come down to her and say, uh, Viv, I promise you you're good at something, but this isn't it. Please stop. Please <laughs> never touch the guitar again. And happily she didn't listen. Yeah. See, the tragedy is, do you know what? The tragedy is, of course, nothing's guaranteed. Um, and, you know, you do... Among us are some of those whales who mistakenly head for the beach and die there. And you see something like the auditions for talent shows where they delight in showing you people who have no business singing, in showing, showing you people actually often who show that no one around them has simply told them, listen, you're probably really good at something else, but not at this. And without an ear, and that every so often must uh, must apply to us as well. And I guess that's the risky. That's what gives us mm. the, the fears about doing stuff. Is that maybe that's me? Maybe it's maybe actually it's shit. And maybe uh, cruelty and humiliation is another thing that we we plod through. Well, yeah, I suppose carry on and carry on and carry on. We love those stories. I must say, people who who do go against really obvious odds, we love them in the end. And that is... Eddie the Eagle. <laughs> Eddie the Eagle's a beauty. Yeah, I wouldn't even... He's a champion, and I won't even put him in that category. He, he, he clearly did what he wanted to do, but it is that, yeah, the Jamaican bobsled team, where you just go, okay, this is going to be difficult, but we're going to give it a crack. I know you've lived around the world and travelled widely, and I really wanted to ask you if there are any writers that, um, other than um, Stephen King, who we've all heard of him, but maybe he's not getting his flowers, but any... Um, Writers who are perhaps not writing in English that you feel should have a wider audience who we should all be reading. Oh, yeah. Probably more than English language writers, yeah. Um, but the ones that are translated is a different question. Do you read in other languages? I do in some, yeah. 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 I often can learn language by figuring out the, uh, the words. But I grew up reading in Spanish, and of course there's an, an immense other world. But I tell you what, contemporary authors, uh, let, let's keep things um, current, Alejandro Zambra, start with his book called My Documents, published by Fitzcarraldo in the last three, four years or so. Alejandro Zambra is a Chilean um, and it's a new wave of, I mean, a lot of people, the last thing they can remember about Latin American literature was Isabel Allende and magical realism. And uh, there is uh, a new wave of much more existential and incredibly nicely done stuff. And Alejandro Zambra is one of them, of course. The, for my money, the greatest novel of the 20th century that I have ever been exposed to is also translated. It's by Julio Cortázar, and in English it's called Hopscotch. And you get you could get frightened if you look at the cover. It's a big work. It's a massive achievement. If you look at the cover, it's called a hypertext novel, 
which implies, like Joyce's Ulysses, which can be a fucking nightmare, depending on the day that you bump into it. Um, and you start thinking, oh my God, it's just you know, going to be some modernist nightmare. No. That one hopscotch, you can actually just read it in order, and it's a great book. This, just the, the portraits of characters and, and scenes and stuff. It takes place in Paris and in Buenos Aires. Uh, he's an Argentine author, or was. That's an incredible read if you want to go into the deep end of really fun literature. And it'll take you, you know, three or four pages to get the pace of it, but it is literally just pure human genius spat on the page. And, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. There's a lot of great stuff. And if you read one of them, you're suddenly overcome with a sad certainty that probably the best things we've ever read will not appear in our language because they could be from, you know, Cambodia. They could be from Indonesia. They could be from a country which will not interest an, interest an English publisher in translation. And you need that one person who can speak both languages to understand that this is a work of genius. There's a fabulous book I was given as a gift in Armenia, The Book of Sadness. And it's, it's one of their legendary texts, like a, a, a mythical saga. But the translation that they have done gives you an inkling of what an important text that is. It's something that we will never see just because... I'm interested. So has, um, the Armenian publisher has produced an English translation Yeah. because there's sort of enough of a, a readership. Yeah, I think from memory this edition has a page and page. Armenian is also the most beautiful uh, written language. Armenian and Georgian, which are completely different languages, weirdly, because they share a border. But, um, but it's also, speaking of the object alone, Sri Lankan, Georgian, Armenian, uh, often Arabic, are just the most beautiful languages to see on a page. You know, I could I could honestly read a book of them without understanding a word of it, just because the the shapes themselves are evocative. But just to say that so many uh, of the great works of the world, obviously we will have found plenty of them, but in contemporary terms, there'll be a lot of stuff that we're not getting just because no one will take the punt. And if it used to be difficult, now it's much more difficult mm. because, never mind chat GPT, the bookselling industry now has an algorithm about what sells. Mm. And if you can't hit certain buttons, so the market is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking down to the 250 bestsellers uh, and we're going to start losing poetry and losing literature and losing what we would call more difficult or far-out books. Um, to our detriment. I'm going to say I'm really worried about that and really, really sad about that. And I notice so much of the the way things work and don't work, that certain things are popular and certain things are given to us in the way that, you know, the news works as well, that the sort of the most, you know, it's sort of the clickiest things kind of perpetuate themselves. Yeah. But also, you know, that's that's why we're here, trying to have these conversations I think the other thing is that if you have curious people who are in a position to go off and look and explore their passions and I think there's an, an appetite for it for sure there I think is people want to know and I think that the other side of the sort of the the scary shiny um, monolith mm. is the sort of the independent curious voices who are asking questions and searching and trying to you know keep these things alive and I think it's going to be the, what we're going to see is it's either going to be tiny or enormous, you know, the big mm. sort of, um, not going to name the particular authors who are dominating the top ten at the moment. We both know how to talk Yeah, well, they can. We need both things. But, and to be fair, I'm happy yeah. to read a, a spy then, novel and a cookery book and, and a, a literary novel in the same day. You know? And I do think and hope that there are, you know, booksellers and publishers in the industry, you know, we're all nerds, aren't we? We're all going to... Love them. I just saw My the new, uh, they've got Early Morning Riser by Catherine Heine over there. And it's interesting because my editor was saying she only recommends Catherine Heine to other publishing people. Okay. And I know quite a few people where I've sort of said, you will love this and pressed it into their hand. And they're like, I did love this and I'm quite surprised by it. And I'm like, oh, how is she, how is she not the sort of blockbuster? I think my, 
what do you call it, the sort of the narrowness of my world. Like, but everyone reads her and everyone loves her. But she's taking such a tiny lens and looking for the absurd and looking for the comic. Yeah, and yeah. I think that as long as we, we talk about books and we ask questions about books and make an effort to read widely and, you know, to read things we would like um you know hopscotch that's probably not a book i ever would have considered reading and i think i would have thought oh my gosh that's enormous i'm quite daunted by that but i'm going to get in there mm, maybe not on this when, trip but yeah, i'm going once you in get in though you you bump into the first charming scene i mean basically again speaking of desert island it's a bunch of really eclectic people sitting around drinking wine and, and being excessive personalities uh which is just just what we want to read about but my fear with what we're talking about is that it, the, uh, we become an elite. It's as if we've gone over the hill of that, you know, go back a century or so, and of course, anyone with an education was an elite. Or anyone who could afford a book or even read and write was part of an elite. We managed to conquer that to some degree in, speaking of the Anglo world, in the 20th century. And now the fucking market, and especially the excuse my French, motherfucking digital market has gone over the hill and, and, and run away with the cart with all of us on there. God bless you for being part of the pollination cycle because I really believe in this. If you're jogging, I hope you're jogging somewhere listening to this. <laughs> I hope you're sitting at home. You could be right here. You've got here a famously athletic listenership on, on your books. desert <laughs> island. Um, you could be anywhere. Hopefully you're in the bath you're doing something, but for God's sake, um, do make an effort. And uh, people like Daisy, who are actually saying, listen, it's a wider world out there, because this will turn into that pinhole of light at the end of a tunnel. And I swear to God, that tunnel is closing around us ever more quickly. And our only hope to remain human, to have a human future where we can be fucked up, we can make mistakes, do our own discoveries, be as curious as we want, speak about what we want, lies in this, in the breadth of ideas that we can get in books. And remember, a book is never offensive, should never be tampered with or banned, unlike, for instance, a television show or, or something, simply because it passes in silence between another mind and our mind, and nobody else witnesses that. It is absolutely in darkness and silence. You cannot read a book by accident. And you should be forewarned going into it that anything could happen. And hopefully it does. So I think it's fabulous uh, what you're doing. We need, to, we need to stick close now. We're a club. We're a movement. Let this be the future. Yes. No, indeed. It really is because the, the human future is really at risk. And we're being run by utopianists who, you know, whose shit is already was disproven in the 50s. But between radical behaviorists and utopianists, we're on this ride, which unfortunately, because they've generated money, they're riding high at the moment. But we need to be the counterculture and um, fuck them. Fuck them indeed. I'm going to do a very clunky segue to ask you my last question in the style of a daytime <laughs> a TV segue. host. Ka-ching. It's enough to drive anyone to drink. And I would love to hear if you've got any favourite novels or favourite books at all that are about um, hedonism and bacchanalianism and um, wine, etc. I particularly, yeah, I, I particularly gravitate to things like that. Uh, so, I mean, the, obviously, Against Nature, Aribur, uh is the classic decadent novel. There's not a lot of wine in it. It's so decadent that actually nothing really happens. The character spends most of it describing the books on his shelves and, and dueling a live tortoise to match the rug in his room. Uh, but drinking in Bacchanalia, goodness gracious me. I just had a sort the of... The beats were pretty good for that, mm. you know. And not so much, obviously, they won't recommend any, any brands, but... Um, you know, just Kerouac and Big Sur and, and some of these things emerging from a hangover gave a good feeling of that, the wind of debauch through your hair, which it does put a nice wind in your face uh, to have that tiny death of going too far and then coming back. 
and to do that I'm sure that's why we do it consistently it's the artists particularly because everything we do is is uh, to confront a fear of death and so to go too far on a session and then come back the next day is an extraordinary thing and that way we we conquer all those demons I wonder anyway if we do that obviously one day we'll be right and we won't come back that is a hell of a note to end on <laughs> okay that's not yeah. very upbeat but let's keep coming back <laughs> yeah and today we're going to come back and tomorrow we're going to come back and if you feel like you won't come back put on some Burt Bacharach <laughs> clack 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 slide out of consciousness forever exactly get some Dion Warwick happening and uh, life will seem something again <laughs> tropey Pierre it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much it's for coming on the podcast thank you we'll- Oh, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank that you. That was really, really fun. Thank you, thank you. Huge thanks to Pierre. Big Snake, Little Snake is published by Profile Books and out now. Also, enormous thanks to Yusunova Fushi, Jaipur Literary Festival and bookseller Melissa Kelly, who hosted us so beautifully in their stunning bookshop. Your book is created by me, Daisy Buchanan, and Dale Shaw, and edited and produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska. You can find a list of all the books Pierre mentioned at acast.com and see a selection on our page at bookshop.org. We are so grateful to everyone who shares the podcast, shouts about it, and especially to everyone who's given us a five-star review. It's the best way to help people to find the podcast, and it means we can keep bringing brilliant book chat to your ears. Finally, I leave you with this from Nancy Pearl. I can relate to the novelist Carrie Brown, who described herself as being a promiscuous reader. I'll give almost any book a chance to have its way with me. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.